Hello, friends. Welcome back to Operation Opera. Elise and I had a chance to chat with fellow soprano, and she's been a soprano of many different distinctions, Amy Shoremount Obra, about the Fach system and balancing your life as an artist. Enjoy. I'm so grateful in these crazy times to have an opportunity to chat with brilliant women about things that we care about. You know, and I'm really glad that it's spring Thanks. and fall and not winter, you know? Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this. Yeah, for sure. No, we're really, we're really excited about it. Um, so I guess to start off, um, let me introduce you. So Elisa okay. Amy. Amy, this is Elisa. Um, so Elisa and I yes. have been working together on this podcast for gosh since like 2013 maybe 14 wow yeah, something like yeah, that yeah i don't know why yeah maybe it was 2014 yeah i can't remember i can't remember i don't know but um and you know we're obviously both classical singers and amy and i mm-hmm. have known each other since long time <laughs> it's like i don't want to say the year now because there are people know, right? you know that that have memories you know and like have lives that were born you know after that so <laughs> like, <laughs> okay yeah yeah we were at manhattan school together so um, Amy mm-hmm. is a grad school and a student, and I as an undergrad. So that's how we know each other. Beautiful. Yeah. So here mm-hmm. we go. So Amy, yeah. tell us yes. a little about your story. Like, um, what got you to where you are, and and you know all that fun jazz. Okay. Well, I am an opera singer and a voice teacher and I basically make my career doing both pretty much equally like I split my time about 50% performing and 50% teaching and um, I really enjoy it and it's and it's a nice um, variety of, of things to keep me occupied but how I got there it's a very long story. I'll try to make it relatively <laughs> short. Uh, so obviously I studied for my undergraduate and my master's degrees at Manhattan School of Music. And then I proceeded to study further at the Juilliard School in the Artist Diploma Program at the Juilliard Opera Center. Uh, around that time is when I made my professional debut at Opera theater of St. as a young artist and kind of from that point on you know I, I, I worked professionally um, I did not have a fast ride to where I'm at by any stretch of the imagination uh, in fact it's probably the exact opposite of that um, it was quite a journey to get where I am and I've gone through like three different vocal fox and lots of yeah I mean I can't wait to hear more about that yeah 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 all right well I'll I'll, I can get into that do you want me to talk about that now or if you want to complete the overview first that's fine sure (laughs) so so yeah so I, I I had several different um uh it was like just when I was I was getting warmed up in one fog that I would realize my voice was was changing into another. Yes. yes. So, uh, <laughs> so so it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and basically, I 
I started teaching, so that's kind of the performance side of things. Um, I, I started teaching when I was in graduate school out of necessity. I remember specifically driving across the George Washington Bridge. Um, my dad was in the car and he was saying, so how do you plan on earning money in graduate school? And I remember, you know, going, dad, what? I'm not going to have any time to work. What are you talking about? And he was like, well, you better figure something out. So I, at the time, that was when Craigslist was actually a safe place to actually advertise for this type of thing for voice lessons. And it was just starting out and there were maybe literally only three or four people in all of New York City advertising for voice lessons on Craigslist. And I was one of them. And so I started to have some very interesting people come to my apartment. Um, and which is, you know, in hindsight, probably not the safest thing, but you know, this, was, this was like 20 years ago. So, um, and, you know, I started off just with amateur singers, uh, people who like to sing. I had so many interesting people from all interesting walks of life. But it fueled my passion for vocal technique or wanting to like dive further into that to understand the voice even more. Because Rachel, as you know, we never studied pedagogy in school. At least I don't know if you did. You did you do your undergraduate at MSM also? Yeah, yeah, it was my undergrad. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think I was probably an undergrad also when you were too. Maybe I was like a. I think you were senior. a year ahead. I think maybe two. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Everything's a blur. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So, um, that was something. And as a matter of fact, when I finished at Juilliard, my first job, I was auditioning for like young artist programs and things, but my first job actually was teaching college vocal pedagogy to non-performance, uh, non-vocal performance, but instrumentalist, which is sometimes um, the majors. best. It's the best. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. So that really, really forced me to have to learn what the heck was happening. Um, and so, yeah, so then I, I actually really started to become serious about teaching and, you know, I've been doing it for very many years and, you know, it, my, my level of students, obviously now I'm college and um, I'm, I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the Conservatory of Music at Brooklyn College, and it's interesting being on faculty with people that were on the voice faculty of MSM when we were there. You know, it's it's kind of like, wow, how did I how did I get here? Yeah, really. Um, and and I teach uh, I taught internationally internationally a lot in Mexico in particular, and master classes and and things all over the U.S. I've done some artists and residencies like at. Um, up in Wisconsin at uh, Lawrence Conservatory of Music up there. And yeah, so so um, all of this teaching was kind of, and the, the local performance career was all kind of building separately at the same time. I was progressing in both areas. And um, when I finally made my Met debut in 2014, singing um the first lady in Mozart's The Magic Flute. I remember thinking, well I guess I'm gonna probably not be able to teach as much now, you know. <laughs> right, right. I've made it to the Met stage now, you know. I'm gonna just you know, having to give up that side of things. I'm just so busy, you know, just so so busy. Yes, yes, yeah. That lasted like all of like, you know, a month in my brain and then I, I realized also that I think if I had done that in retrospect that I would have really missed it anyway because I actually really do love both yeah career paths equally for different reasons and they both fulfill me in different ways and I'm very very fascinated by the voice and what it can do and knowing how it works and educating people about that and I'm a big pedagogy geek so it's empowering uh, right mm-hmm it really is. And and just building up your ears, you know, training your ears to hear things that I'm like 15 years ago, I never would have heard. It's exciting to be able to hear things and, and to share that with others. 
um, and open, it's like opening people's ears to, to, to certain things that when you're younger, you just, you're not listening for necessarily. So I, I love that. Right. So if we were to unpack yeah, that so idea, that's the overview. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. So if we were to unpack that idea about vocal pedagogy, just for those, you know, listening mm-hmm. in that maybe don't really understand, mm-hmm. like, so as you were describing it, and maybe as I would sort of define it, it's, um, it's being able to sort of dissect the voice and understand yes. what's going on, like, oh, you know, this muscle is too involved, or there's not enough space mm-hmm. in this way. And this is how your palate moves. And all of the sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, physical stuff, right. That we, that we kind mm-hmm. of wrap our brains around and then get into knots sometimes and, and overthink. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but it's essential <laughs> for, right. For, yeah, yeah for, um, for understanding. So Elisa, you wanted to, to hop back to a, to something that, that Amy brought up. Yeah. Well, I think it, it could actually, um, it's related to this whole pedagogy discussion on a certain level because we have to not try to be something that we're not. Yeah, um, I think that's a huge part of understanding our, our our voice and its capabilities and our unique strengths and also weaknesses. Right, we have to understand what we can and can't do, um, and a correct understanding of vocal pedagogy or of vocal technique, um, the proper way to sing, is what will enable us to to choose the right rep. And mm-hmm. um, I would just love to hear more about your journey from Fach to Fach that you mentioned earlier, because, you know, obviously you were experiencing technical difficulties probably that led you to believe I need to sing something other than this, even though this was working for me a year ago or mm-hmm. six weeks ago or whatever. I'd just love to hear more about so, that. Yeah, certainly. So, um, so is I'll go all the way back to high school. In high school, I used to sing alto in the choir. Well, I sang every voice part, but alto also a lot because I had the good ear, and you know, the choir teacher always throw me like in that section. I need you for the harmonies. So, oh, I even remember thinking back then. I wonder if I'm a mezzo. I, I I totally wasn't, but just in my brain, I was like, huh. I wonder if that would be like. Uh, when I got to Manhattan School of Music, obviously it was it was apparent I was a soprano, and then um, very you know, very apparent. Say, I'm just going to throw that out there. Very apparent. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> that and it cut out. What did you say? Oh, I just said very apparent. Like it was oh, very yes. apparent. In, in in all aspects of life, even personality wise. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so I. Um, you know, I think I was lucky in that the first couple of years at school, primarily for my undergraduate, uh, I I just sang music that felt comfortable. You know, most of it at that point in your life is like middle voice art song repertoire and, and things of that nature. Um, I think it was towards the end of my undergrad when I started to realize I did have an extension. And I've always been the type of person that has been really gutsy like if someone told me I couldn't do something I would want to prove them wrong immediately it was just like this like urge I always had to like oh well fine I'm gonna do that then so um not that anybody told me I couldn't sing high notes but it was like this pressure I think I almost put on myself like well I've got these high notes I'm gonna just sing them and I'm gonna sing the best high notes that it ever could be so I, I, I became obsessed with, I sound like a tenor right now, the way I'm talking. Yeah, but... <laughs> except for the fact that, like, you did find them, and they are unbelievably glorious. Go on. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're very kind. So I, um, yeah, so I had this extension, and I, I think here's where, where things started to change a little bit. It was that because I had an extension, People assumed, uh, people got excited. I, I remember in particular, we did that one production. I guess this was my first year of graduate school then at MSM when we did the Magic Flute and I was cast as Queen of the Night. And I remember my teacher at the time saying, absolutely not. And then a particular coach, you know, who you may remember, Rachel saying, yes, yes, yes. She needs to do it. She needs to sing it. Right. And so... I tried it out and I, it worked. And so after singing that, then I think in my own head, 
more than anything else, I thought, well, I must be a cool repertoire soprano. And so I just kind of became obsessed with that repertoire. And, and you know, I listened to a lot of Lily Pons, Sutherland, um, every cool repertoire you could think of. I was, I had them going on my CD player constantly and um, was exploring that repertoire. And so I guess I, I just kind of went into it full throttle and I was working on that repertoire and just kind of assumed that's what I was and that's where my voice sat. And, and at the time it was comfortable for me. Um, you know, I was like 22, 23 years old. Um, and I, and I worked in that repertoire for quite some time, primarily almost, I would say 90% of my career was singing Queen of the Night. And up until I was about the age of 30. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, the Met hired me to cover there. I did three seasons covering that role at the Metropolitan Opera. I sang it with New York City Opera um, and a few other regional places. And everyone needs a queen, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the, towards the end of my 20s, um, I was developing a little bit of a flutter and just a fast vibrato. Um, and people who had good ears would point it out to me, but no one really, they would just say you're developing a flutter, you know, make sure you work on that. But, right. I never but really nobody knew, ever like, has any ideas about what that means. Right. Or like how ex- to actually exactly. work on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so at the same time, um, you know, I did some auditions and, and suddenly things were kind of not going well. I was getting a lot of feedback that, you know, this is not your repertoire, basically was what was being said. And so I was very confused because I had been working in that repertoire for quite some time. So I did a lot of uh, just thinking and, and, and um, pondering, like, what this could all mean. And I was very, very fortunate to have some trusted... Um, mentors, should I say, not my voice teacher, but some other people in the business who I sang for, and they gave me their honest thoughts and suggested that perhaps a repertoire change was in order, and and that I might even want to consider changing teachers just for a fresh perspective. And so I started playing around with lyrics upon a repertoire, and found that it was so much more comfortable. In fact, I remember I was trying to learn the soprano key of um, Una Voce Poco Fa, and it was just not working. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was getting very frustrated and, and, and being told, well, you must be doing something wrong. There must be, you know, this shouldn't be hard. When in actuality, it was, if I, I guess this is like a piece of advice I have for young singers is always go with your gut. Um, and I, I, I did eventually, but at this point yet I hadn't, um, you know, I was, I, it was, it was calling to me, but I wasn't really listening to myself, um, to what it was saying. And it was that this is not your repertoire. This is not, your voice is, has changed. And yes, you might've been able to get by in this repertoire for a while. This is not where your voice wants to sit anymore. So I started playing around with some lyrics soprano repertoire and I was lucky I got hired to sing my first Musetta, which I sang two or three times, I can't remember how many times. Um, and like all of the more lyric repertoire was, was feeling way more comfortable. Um, I sang a Fiordaligi. Um, I started doing Don Giovanni, which was great. That was the role I did the most next to First Lady in the Magic Flute. Um, and then, and you know, yeah. first or, and yeah, Don Anna, although let me tell you, I still to this day would love to sing in Elvira. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. you should. Like, well, yeah, you <laughs> would just have to be a very large voice cast and in a big, in right, a right, right, right. big, um, sure. a big uh, hall or, or yeah, yeah, theater. But anyway, theater. so I, I did Mozart for, I was back in Mozart, but different Mozart. I put Queen of the Night away at like age 29 and never looked back at it. And I honestly, to this day, still don't miss it. But then it was interesting. So I was working in this repertoire and then I hit about 
the age of 35, 36. And that repertoire was still all working for me great. Not the Musettes as much, but, but you know, all the, the bigger Mozart was, was working great for me. And I went over to Europe and my pianist friend there, she, she pulled out um, Du bist der Lenz, mm. Wagner. Mm. And, and she said, just give this a try. Just, just, just try it. And I was like, what? I know, what? right? Because we're, <laughs> were we not raised? Were we not told like Wagner, stay away? Like, you exactly. know, like this, right? And yeah. like, I had this perception of myself, like now I look back and I'm like, duh, like, <laughs> hello, you're five foot eight, blonde, Norwegian, Swedish heritage. Like, what do you think you're gonna sing <laughs> with a wide forehead? You know what I mean? Like, of course, that's my gonna be my repertoire, like the bigger stuff. Um, yep. But I, I have to say that the the Linda actually is probably, even though I would love to sing it, um, my voice still, my tessitura does still still sit much higher. Yes. Yes. Um, and and so I think actually Brunhilda's would would be a much easier thing for me than Siglinda, although Siglinda is just so fascinating dramatically. But um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, so I started looking at the Wagnerian repertoire then, and it took me, I would say, about eight months, mostly just getting over the mental, my, my ideas in my mind of what, of how someone was supposed to sound singing that, and how, and then it really occurred to me that you sing it just like Mozart, like, there's really no difference, you don't have, there's, the, you you just sing it and it's not about making a bigger sound or adding air. I mean, you never want to do any of that. It's you just sing it with your voice and treat it like Mozart. If it's the right repertoire for you, it works and it was working. Um, and, and so I, you know, I did some Wagner competitions, the Wagner Society of New York, I won second prize. And then I, two years ago, won top prize in the Wagnerian division in the Gerda Listener um, competition in New York, which was congratulations. the biggest, thank you. It was the biggest competition. I've, I've never won top prize in anything that I can think of. So it was the biggest, it, it, it was a good way to end my, my life in competitions because now obviously I've aged out of everything. It was, it was kind of a nice ending to all of that, those years of pounding the competition circuit, you know, pavement and, and never really, you know, except for the Metropolitan Opera competition, which I had success in when I was like 24. Um, and I made it to the national semifinals that, and then I also made the finals of the George London's that year. That, that was really it. Like I was not a competition winner. I was never one of those people. And so I, it was a nice way to kind of round it all out in the end, like, end on a high note, <laughs> literally and figuratively. <laughs> so, um, and then, so I kind of, two years ago, I was in Mexico and, and this conductor there asked me to come and sing a solo concert with this orchestra there in the state of Chihuahua, in the city of Chihuahua. And one of the arias he was requesting was Inquesta Regia from Turandot and I mm. thought hmm I should try that I never thought about that so I tried it and I, I did end up singing it in the concert um and it was it was so perfect for me and the role was so perfect for me and I feel like it's kind of like my queen of the night for yes this part of my career it's the now big girl <laughs> queen of the night that's right so yeah, yeah. and <laughs> so Yes, yes. Now we're we're we've we've stepped up in the world. So I um yeah, it was it was perfect for me and I you know, I, I am scheduled to sing my first turn belt this May, unfortunately because of the COVID. I'm not so sure it's gonna happen, but I'm hoping it'll be postponed. I I still don't know. But uh yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm uh, the Wagnerian repertoire still works great for me. I still can sing big Mozarts. But I'm definitely a lyric dramatic soprano. My voice feels extreme. The most extreme comfort I have is in singing high and sustained. I feel like I can do it all day long. Now, I did just sing. I, I also still am very comfortable in the big, big bel canto repertoire. I just did this 
U.S. premiere of of this bel canto opera that that had only been performed like twice in the last like 200 years uh, by Pacini called Maria Regina di Gilterra. I just did that in Boston last fall. And um, that was actually one of the hardest roles I've ever sung because it was written originally for uh, a mezzo-soprano. Well, I think it it says soprano in the score, but when you look at the tessitura, it's really low. And uh, the, the first act sits much higher, or the second act, she's not in the first act, the second act sits much higher, and then the third act dips really low, and it, was a, and it stays, like the tessitura stays in that lower middle range, and it's very, very hard if you sound like how many high B flats and Cs or whatever. Sure, to jump down. To then, like, hover down there, especially as a soprano. So that was extremely challenging, but I can sing that repertoire as well, but I would still say that comfort-wise my voice fits best in high and sustained. So um, that's that's just kind of where I, I really enjoy kind of hovering out, like Gs, A-flats, B-flats. Just give, just write me a role that just sits there for two hours and we're good. See, so. and this to me <laughs> Wait, is... Why do you like going on that? Don't yeah. on that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, although she... You know, Mozart's always interesting because... His ensembles always sit really high, and then you're like, eh, you know, by the end of the act, and then it, it, it'll dip down, especially Cosi Fantine. But I feel like Don Giovanni does a little bit of that too, but not as much as like, like I try, like the Countess, for instance. That that's a that's a tricky that that role is one I could sing, um, but it sits kind of a little lower, and it's mm-hmm. challenging where that tessitura sits, but. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got to where I am right now, uh, vocal, fuck-wise. So can I ask a follow-up question, which is, um, do you think that these changes you underwent were attributable to just the maturing voice, like kind of as you got older, or do you think it was something else? I'm just curious if you dissected it pedagogically to mm-hmm. understand kind of the evolution of your own instrument. Yeah, well, you know, I have, and I think, quite honestly, I was never a coloratura. I, I, I don't think I ever was. I think I actually always was what I am, mm. but it just wasn't as a parent. You know, like, some dramatic instrument, there's a certain almost darker color, and I, I have a, a I, you know, it's funny, sometimes people say I have a darker color I don't hear it I think my voice is pretty bright but I think your uh, voice is rich but but I would definitely say it's a rich bright sound thank you yeah Yeah, that sounds nice and (laughs) and so a lot of people I think especially when you think of a Wagnerian soprano they think of a voice that's I think a little bit darker and, and maybe duskier or whatever the word I would use to describe it would be um, and that's not, my voice is never like that. And plus having the extension, oftentimes Wagnerian singers have no a, a real difficult problem. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. With the, with the top of the voice. And that's always been like my that. freakish area. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been so easy for me. Like I was like always popping high CSD, you know, I mean, I used to have an F, I don't need more. I don't need it. But, um, I still can get up to an E flat if I'm really, really warmed up. Uh, so and sustain it. So I don't know. Um, I think uh, definitely. I think I always was what I am, but it, it just took vocal maturation, maturity, and um, letting go of my own preconceived notions of myself of what I thought I was to then be able to kind of find where I was going but also I think a lot of larger voices know that that's their repertoire earlier on and I think because of my extension and I I do have the ability still I have a lot of flexibility in my voice um so I think that also is what kind of skewed people's opinions of me and even myself, my own opinions of myself, because 
you know, there's just a lot of kind of preconceived notions about what a voice should do. Like people think dramatic soprano probably won't, their voice won't move very easily. You know, um, the, there wouldn't be an extension when in fact mine can do both of those has an extension and can move very easily. Well, and I feel so like this is dramatic a coloratura then maybe. Well, yeah, I think I probably started off. I mean, that's how I used to classify myself when I was younger for sure. Hmm. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, that's, to me, that's the actual issue with the Fach system. Like it's important mm-hmm. to have, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, parameters that we fall into, you know, fall under, mm-hmm. but, of course. but those have to be a little bit fluid because exactly. there's always going to be elements of your voice that will fit into the writing of a particular role because that mm-hmm. composer, you know, maybe just would have understood you, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, even Mozart, when he wrote his, when he wrote his roles, they were for specific people. And, exactly. you know, it wasn't like, well, <clears throat> I'm going to write this one for a coloratura. I'm going to check that little box. Exactly. You know, like, it's not, that's not, yeah. right? That's not how, that's not how the, 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 sermon, the sort of German Fach uh, school came I believe much later than most of these when, mm-hmm. than when most of these compositions were written. Okay. Yeah, and and I think there's a danger. While it, it is important to sort of have parameters with things, I think there's a danger in sticking to that and making it a very black and white situation because there are always going to be exceptions. And I think uh, um, there's a lot of beauty in in that, in, in knowing that there are exceptions and people who don't fit the mold. And, and I know like when I'm listening to singers now, I mean, when I, I get very excited if I hear somebody who doesn't fit the mold, I'm like, yes, you know, that's, that's something that excites me. I don't want cookie cutter. I, I, you know, I I want different. So, Oh, I agree. Oh, I get so bored of hearing the same sounds. Like, yes. And, and knowing that that person is in there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right? That. And like, yeah. And just, you know, and just this feeling like, well, if I sound like so-and-so, then I'll get hired eventually. Or if I have, you know, these certain qualities, then, you know, then someone will see me as this. And then it, it just, it feels so fear-based instead of like, you know, faith-based, yes. like something coming from within. Yep. I have another question for yeah. you, Amy. Sure. So have you reflected back on how your past might have been different if you had heeded the advice of your voice teacher in grad school uh, and not the coach who wanted you to do the Queen of the Nights? That's a good question. You know, I think I probably would have found my path anyway because um, my personality is one that um, I like. I ask a lot of questions. And and I like to know why. <laughs> In fact, my mother even tells me when I was a baby that I was always asking why, how, you know. So um, I think I would have found my path anyway. I mean, it might have been a slightly different route, but I, I do believe that I would have figured it out anyway. Um, and I'm also very stubborn, so like I would have done what I wanted to do anyway. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> so were you how much longer did you stay with that voice teacher I'm curious because if she if you went against her wishes in singing that role was that the end of your working relationship no or? well she she was funny because she um then when she heard me sing it she was like oh okay and I remember her calling the coach and and saying and thanking him actually for recommending it so and no, I ended up staying with her for like another seven years after that. Yeah, so that was yeah. I had, okay, when so I, when you when I when I left her, that actually had nothing to do with it. It was just time for a change, as we all, you know, change is, is always good. So, so it um, didn't coincide with you choosing to go toward the lyric rep instead of color. Um, the lyric rep, yes. Because that was about seven years after the Queen of the Night incident. But, um, yes, that, that was, uh, um, you know, that that did, that was part of it. 
But um, but we parted amicably, and, and actually, I just saw her last year. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, I, uh, I really liked, sorry, sorry. I'm no. I, I just, I'm jumping in. I no, really worries. liked that idea that you shared about going with your gut. And that kind of goes with what we're talking about right now. When you were saying when, you know, I just find it fascinating that, that, that teacher said to the coach, Oh, thank you so much. When I imagine the conversation with you initially was like, absolutely not. You cannot sing that. You are, you know, of this course. is too intense. Da, da, da. Of and like, I feel so many young singers and I, and I put myself in that category. And for me, I was so ignorant about everything. Like, you know, people were like, oh, I love this composer. And I love this. And I'm like, I'm from a small town and I grew up listening to the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have any framework other than an absolute love of something so unfamiliar. And mm-hmm. so when, when, um, when I think about young singers getting to that place of like listening to themselves and knowing, mm-hmm. like, I feel that very strongly because when I was presented something and a teacher would say, oh dear, like, you can't do that yet. And I'd be like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh okay. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. like just very, very like, okay, I, I should be obedient. I should do what they ask or don't ask. Yes. And what that ends up doing is that then you just end up being a hodgepodge of whatever person is in front of these ideas that, um, that aren't mm-hmm. actually from your own soul. And, yes. and that's, it's, it's a, and then that's also, I think what can lead to that sound that we are bored by. Yes. Right. For sure, for, for sure, definitely. I agree with you 100% on all of that. Um, you know, I'm always telling my singers to listen listen to themselves. And in, in fact, I even had a student uh, a couple months ago who um, we got into a discussion about Fach, and she was very, I suggested that she try switching to mezzo for a while, and she was very adamant that I was, she was not switching to my so that she was a soprano. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to, you know, you know yourself better than anybody. I said, we're going to give it a shot, still a soprano for a while, and we'll revisit this issue in a couple months. And, you know, it's been interesting. Um, some, you know, some voices are tricky. You, you can hear, you can, you can hear something in a voice one day and then you can hear something else in that same voice the other day, especially when you're in a formative stages. So, so you never want to get too hung up as a teacher on an, an idea of what a young singer is, in my opinion, because I think that can be quite dangerous. And, you know, I think she's, she's right that she is a soprano and, and I'm glad she, she's very stubborn as am I. Um, but she was stubborn in, in, in what she knew she herself to be. And I think that as, te- as a teaching professional, it's really important to humble oneself and, and realize that you don't have all the answers. That, and that you end up listening to your students because quite often they, you know, it's their body and their instrument and they, they know better than anybody what they're feeling. Um, and so there's a lot of balance with, with all of that to have has to take place I think to make somebody a really effective teacher and that takes a lot of being humble and and you know humbling oneself and 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 shedding of your your own ego you know and that's uh, unfortunately we don't see a lot of that um but I, I think times are changing you know I have a lot of conversations with my teaching colleagues and I think I think there's some some good stuff happening out there in that respect yeah I have a question for you about this sure Mezzo soprano, um, mm-hmm. soprano sort of uh, question. It's a question mm-hmm. about a question. Um, okay. <laughs> so, I, in my experience, which is pretty, it's pretty long. It's been some decades now. Um, I have run across a lot of singers who end up sort of pigeonholed into being a mezzo soprano, not necessarily because of their voice or their personality, but because of technical difficulties or a misconception about mm-hmm. the high voice, like transitioning through mm-hmm. the passaggio into the high voice. And I, I think growing up in the West myself and having started voice lessons at the age of 12, I was really influenced by singing art forms that are more American. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I started listening to opera from a very early age and to European artists um, singing opera. And so I, I had an idea of what it sounded like. But as far as how to produce it, I think I didn't really receive that information until much, much later. Sure. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can speak to that, as having been a pedagogue for as long as you have, sort of the influence of um, music theater and genres of music that do not cross that second passaggio mm-hmm. line. Um, yeah. And how that affects American singers trying to approach this European art form of opera, which requires a different understanding of support and resonance in order to access the top. Definitely. Well, gosh, this is this is a really, really good loaded question. Yes, it's um, a meaty one. So it's very well done. Go on. You're with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, first and foremost, um, let's talk about the fundamental differences between the two genres in terms of, of some technical aspects. So, so primarily, you know, with classical singing, you're going to have a, a, a smaller mouth space and much larger space in the back, back space. And that's going to direct things to a different resonance that will project the sound out further over the orchestra without a microphone, all of that. Um, so the, the vowels are resonating in a different place and, and not as much in the mouth. And so then you have musical theater, which utilizes much more mouth resonance and a, a more closed space in the back. So that sound is going to be wider, brighter, and louder in the immediate presence of, you know, in, in, the, in this immediate area around the singer. And it won't carry as far because mouth resonance does not carry as far as head resonance does um so so the issue then becomes when you have um young singers and you know i did not grow up listening to opera at all i grew up listening to like whitney houston and bon also, Jovi great and Madonna. Yeah, also yeah. a diva a diva in yeah, her own right that letter yeah. too but yeah, yeah sure but letter. pop music i i grew up completely listening to pop music and musical theater um and i didn't even see my first opera until i was 16 so that sound was not in my in in me at all. I mean, the only I would say remotely classical sound I had in my ear was that of a choral sound, you know, a very dark kind of choral sound. Um, so um, I, I I always tell my young singers, especially my undergrads, like, who are you listening to? Like, you know, we have to f- encourage young singers to listen. You have to have a reference point and you have to listen to the sounds and, 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 and pay attention to the differences. And, um, you know, and I think that's, it's difficult in that culturally, you know, classical singing is not, it's, I have a whole lecture on this subject actually about the beginnings of Italian opera in the United States. And essentially in a nutshell, you know, it was brought here by up until the year 1825, basically we had two types of, of, um, music theater going on. We had, uh, British comic operas and, um, and then we had, uh, which were all in English. And then we had, um, well, actually, three types of performances. We, we, we did have operas. We had British comic operas. And then we had these adaptations of Italian operas, like Henry Bishop. He would take, he took, like, for instance, Don Giovanni, translated it into English, took maybe four or five of the great hits of Mozart out of the opera, extracted them, and then wrote his own music all around all of that. And then they presented that here and that's how the stories of these great operas were introduced initially to the American people. Hmm. Um, and then the other type of musical performances they had were these like mishmash evenings where they would throw in, um, it would start off with like an overture, uh, an instrumental overture. Then they would do something like Shakespeare's The Tempest where they would interject, interject like 30 some musical numbers, completely unrelated, um, 
and then they would add dances and they'd have like pantomimes or farces and then they would have another interview and like so you know there was this great interest yeah there was this great interest (laughs) in music and theater uh, as a combination but but it was always in English yeah and so when Italian opera came here it was brought by these elite Italian actually elite British and, and Italian um people, wealthy people in New York, led by Lorenzo da Ponte, actually, who was a professor at Columbia University, and they, you know, ended up bringing the Garcia family to the United States, and they produced the first season of Italian opera, and so culturally, the point of all of this is that music in English, in fact, after this first season of, of Italian opera, then there was no Italian opera in the United States for five years after that. So um, it was, even though it was received relatively well, people were still very like, no, we I don't get it. speak English. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we want things in English. And I think that still exists today. I mean, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge for opera companies and, and classical singers in general now is that it's not an, an um, it was introduced here from Europe, but it's not in a part of our culture from the get, hasn't been a part of our culture from the get go, you know? So, um, I think it, it, there's just this challenge to get people to open their ears to this great music. And I think we can find creative ways to kind of do that perhaps. Um, but, but I think ultimately until we can get the young people really listening to the sounds that they need, that, that they're going to want to try to create themselves that, you know, you can't really do that unless you have that reference point. And so I don't know if that answers the question, but I kind of skated around a little bit, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's any easy solutions to it other than getting young people excited about these sounds and getting them listening to, to things. And then eventually I think they, I mean, I think back back to myself when I first heard opera. My parents used to pay me 20 bucks to clean the house when I was like 16, 17 years old. So they would go... 20 bucks? That's great. 20 bucks to clean the house. (laughs) So I would blast... I would blast Mozart opera on my boombox as I'd be like vacuuming and dusting the house. And I remember just like trying to like emulate the sounds, you know? And once I had those... I knew those sounds were possible... I think if you've got the natural gift for it, mm. then you'll figure it out. I think I think that's another component to it. You know, if someone doesn't have the natural tendency towards that, I don't think they're going to find it as easily as if you do. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. 20 yeah. bucks. Man, I <laughs> wish I'd been paid 20 bucks to clean the house. <laughs> well, it's... No, no, no. Inflation. This is like twenty-five years ago. Yeah, I know. I know. You think about that, man. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking, I'm like, man, I wonder if I can teach my kids to do that. That'd be great. No, um, yeah. The idea of having something, you know, in you, you know, just Mm -hmm. that that just is a part of you, is such an interesting one, and it really comes down to, you know, what are we fostering? And Mm -hmm. I think that. with a lot of young people like you and you talk about like getting them excited. Like I, I posted something the other day on Facebook because our lives are now moving to electronic things because of the situation in the world. And I, I, that was, um, you know, I asked people to post their favorite piece of music and Mm -hmm. a coach that I did a concert with here, um, in Auckland, um, a couple of months ago, uh, posted a piece that I love and I, I wrote about it and she and she said that she when she plays it for her students they're always like ah oh, you know I'm not gonna listen to that you know and these are kiwis that are just like not you know you know these are they're not interested and then she plays yeah. it for them and she says and I wait for the C the C minor chord change at this moment and then mm-hmm. they all always their eyes just widen you know you mm-hmm. there's this with yeah. this repertoire with music that took time to create it takes time to digest and right like we have to sit with it and allow it Mm -hmm. to sort of penetrate us and then we can actually 
experience it and then sort of put it out into the world and want to put it out into the world. At least that's, that's how I feel about, about classical music. Completely. And I think our lifestyle now as well, everything is so fast paced. We don't, you know, generally people don't have the time or even the patience because we're also just like quickly running from one thing to another to sit and do that. And I think there's, there's just so much, um, beauty and in, in being able to just sit with something and ponder it. I mean, even poetry, you know, it's like understanding a poem. There's some poems I've been trying to understand for years. (laughs) Yeah. Still think about, but, um, you know, that's really what great art is. And, you know, every, every type of art has its place, but, but this type of art does require a little bit more digging and thinking and pondering and people have to be willing to do that. That's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this has been really fun. You guys, this is a little bit shorter than we usually go, but, but I feel like, I feel like we've reached a really good point, a really good, yeah. Good place. Um, Elisa, do you have a blast? Any... Yeah? Good. Elisa, do you have any other f- yeah. thoughts? or? I, I feel satisfied. Yeah. I think this was wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much, Amy. I feel like... Oh, I've my had... pleasure. Thank you, ladies. I've had brunch with some wonderful women. That's how I feel. <laughs> a <laughs> what music... time is it in A musical right brunch. Now? I mean, it's actually really breakfast. It's, it's now 9 a.m., so. Oh my goodness! Yeah, got up but, early. Uh, but on today's a today's a Monday here, so you're on a Tuesday, right? Yep, Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Yep. Wow. I know it is so, so crazy. It's such a mind like field minefield for me when I'm trying to figure out like times with things. I'm like, okay, okay. So right now it's this. It's a whole thing, but it's worth it. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, thanks for for joining us, and and I really thank you. I really love this. Yeah, it was an honor. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. All right. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes. Part two. Yes, part two. We'll we'll make it French so it sounds fancier. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye, guys. Yes, take care. Stay well. You too. Thank you. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.